Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Psychology Is podcast. I'm Nick Fortino, and I'm introducing a conversation I got to have with one of the most influential psychologists of all time, Dr. Elliot Aronson. It was such an enjoyable conversation. We talked about his life, which he wrote about in his autobiography called Not By Chance Alone. We talked about some of the important concepts in social psychology, some of which are written about in his classic book, The Social Animal, and also in his more recent book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And he just speaks sharply and passionately and so insightfully about human behavior. So the conversation's nice and long, when you talk to Elliot Aronson, you can't cut it short. You gotta, you gotta milk that for all it's worth. So it's a nice long conversation. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. I, as I told you, I loved your interview with Bob Plowman. That was so good. It really, it really means a lot to hear you say that. Yeah, I, I try to do my best to prepare thoroughly to talk to people and make it worth their while. So it, it, it means a lot to get that type of feedback. So th there are so many directions that a conversation with a person like you can take. You know, you, you've contributed so much to the field of psychology and you've experienced so much in your life. And so let's see where the conversation takes us. I'll just say here in the beginning that so far I've read four of your books, including The Social Animal, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, uh, one of your social psychology textbooks, which I use for my social psychology classes, and most recently your autobiography, Not By Chance Alone, My Life as a Social Psychologist. So it's safe to say that you have significantly influenced the way I think and understand my social world. Yet your autobiography had a special effect on me. And, and so before I try to articulate what that effect has been, I would love to know, what was it like for you to write your autobiography? <laughs> uh, well, it sounds like a simple question, but it, the, the answer is kind of complicated. Um, first of all, um, I never intended to write an autobiography. Um, but there is a series in psychology that the APA, American Psychological Association, puts out like once every 15 or 20 years, a book comes out with eight, nine, 10 uh, contributors called The History of Psychology in Autobiography. Mm. And a long, long time ago, before my time, and certainly before yours, it was edited by Edward G. Boring, uh, who was the, in addition to being a really good um, brass instrument psychologist uh, at Harvard, he was also the historian of psychology who wrote an important history of psychology 
you know, starting with the Wilhelm Wundt and all of mm. those guys with mm. black beards. Um, and recently, in recent years, it's in the past 40 or 50 years, it's been edited by Gardner Lindsay. Uh, and he invited me to be one of the uh, people writing a brief autobiography for that volume. Um, but once I got into it, so I, you know, I agreed to do it because it was an honor to be in that company. I, I think in that volume, there were uh, people like Walter Michel and Elizabeth Loftus and people that I really know and like and respect a lot. So I was in very good company. Once I got into it, I started to write. And um, when I handed it in to Gardner, he said, uh, it, it, he liked it a lot, uh, but he said it was too long. And mm. I had to cut off, cut out about uh, 30 or 40% of it. Mm. <laughs> well, I grew up in the Great Depression, which means I never throw anything away. Mm. So uh, at first I argued with him a lot because it, 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 it was of a piece, uh, everything was interconnected. And I thought, yeah, I can't just rip out 30 or 40% of it. But he said, oh, well, look, whatever you don't use, you can, why don't you expand on it and you can write a book. And I did. And that's why I, you know, I, I would never dream of writing an autobiography. I would never, it would never occur to me that anyone might be interested in reading it. Mm -hmm. But as an expansion of the thing I wrote for the history of psychology and autobiography, it seemed like a good idea. And then once I got into doing that um, and made it more, even more personal, more about my family, more about my birth family, my mm -hmm. father and my mother and my brother, um, it became uh, it became one of the great experiences of my life, mm. especially. I think I don't know when I wrote it. Maybe ten, twelve years ago, and um, maybe fifteen. Uh, I uh, I don't know if you're aware of it, but I lost most of my eyesight about twenty years ago, and mm -hmm. I can't read anymore. So. It seemed like an autobiography, which didn't didn't require me to do a lot of reading and looking things up and scholarly mm. uh, work, uh, was a was a reasonable thing to do because all I had to do was search my memory, mm -hmm. and then check my memory out with other people who might have been around at the time, to make sure it wasn't totally self serving as memories usually are mm -hmm. um and that's how i came to write it it was a it was an incredibly powerful experience uh painful at times mm. because i was i was um reliving my experience with my brother and other close friends who had died um in the meantime and um and, you know, if you live long enough, uh, you begin to lose a lot of friends to death. Death is, death is a sniper that uh, seems to be picking off my friends one at a time. Uh, and that's, uh, that part was painful to, to recapture some of my experiences. 
with the people I love most who are no longer around. Yes. Hmm. That was that was part of what affected me so much was those losses. You know, your father when you were just a child, your brother who was so young, and I understand you were only in your twenties, and he was in his early thirties when he died, which is it really impacted me. You know, I have two brothers myself, and we are incredibly close, and so it's it's unimaginable. You know what it would be like to experience that and you know to make it more significant you were so you admired your brother so much you learned so much from him he cared so much about you that really comes through in the book how much he loved you and 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 just invested um himself into you and looked over you and yeah so What's interesting is writing it brought me in touch with what you just said, mm. uh, how much he did love me. I, because he, when my father died, when our father died, uh, I was in high school. I was a junior in high school. And um, then when I went off to college, I, I went to Brandeis, where my brother was a junior at Brandeis when I started as a freshman. And I, the only reason I went to Brandeis was because it was the only university that offered me a scholarship. Mm -hmm. uh, and I couldn't have gone without a scholarship. Um, but then I, there I, was, I ended up at the same university as my brother, who was a very big guy on campus. He was uh, the first president of the student union. He was the editor of the very first yearbook because he was in the first graduating class at Brandeis. Um, he was the the director of the very first musical comedy that they put on uh, at Brandeis. So he was really big. Mm. And he wanted to play the role of my father. So it's, it was a little bit like going to college with your father, which mm. was not a good idea. <laughs> right. uh, and so... I really, I kind of resented a lot of the overseeing that he did. You know, you go away to college, you want to be able to work and study, but you also want to have a good time. Right. And that's why it, it, it didn't feel right to have him uh, looking over my shoulder all the mm -hmm. time, criticizing me for the women I was dating and <laughs> that he didn't approve of and stuff like that. But in going back over it in some detail for the autobiography, I was just overwhelmed with, with how much uh, love and affection mm. there was between the two of us. Yes. Hmm. And it was, it was a very culminating moment in the book too, when you talked about, and when it's funny, when I say the book, I'm also talking about your life. So in your life, when, there was that moment when you felt he finally saw you as an equal. I think it was, you know, upon completing your PhD and securing a teaching position at Harvard and having your first son, Hal. And it was just, there was this beautiful scene you describe when I believe it was when he met up with you and Vera to camp for a night and he was just kind of 
affectionately stroking your baby's face. And he was like, you did it. You really did it. And, and I love the way you described it too, the way he was caressing your son's face with infinite tenderness. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. The, the, uh, the lasting impression that I still have upon reading this book is that your life has been so complete. And when I say that, I also, I trust you have plenty left to live, but I'm just, I'm just so struck by the way your story contains everything that defines human existence, adversity, tragedy, triumph, sorrow, joy, elation, deflation, learning and teaching and insight and success and meaning. And of course, so much love and all woven into this beautiful process of becoming the, the roller coaster of your becoming. And I just can re relate to a very on a personal level because I am a psychologist of the type that you are uh, in that I'm not a therapist, but I'm a professor and a researcher. And I'm also a married man, very much in love with my wife and I have children. And so they were just, I, I really look up to you and aspire to live a life that is as complete and profound as yours. Thank you. Thank you. That's, uh, <laughs> that's very flattering and, uh, I, yeah, I, writing the autobiography, again, it brought into focus uh, all of the things you mentioned and the way things fit together that I didn't realize fit mm -hmm. together that way. You know, mm -hmm. like, I mean, I sort of had a feeling for it, like mm -hmm. to take the people the professors that I've worked with and that I felt closest to and to kind of discover really it was a discovery how I integrated each of them mm. into my own uh, value system and my own way of doing research and thinking about psychology and mm. um, I hadn't realized the extent to which I had really embodied these guys and and integrated them in, mm -hmm. in a way that they would have been astonished to see the company they were keeping. Mm -hmm. One of the most charming details in the whole book for me was the fact that Abraham Maslow was the matchmaker for you and your wife. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. And, you know, the, the description of how you encountered Abraham Maslow kind of captures the whole idea of not by chance alone, you know, a little bit of chance, but not by chance alone. And so you describe getting coffee with this attractive woman and deciding to follow her along to her intro to psychology class and hopes to maybe be holding hands in the classroom or something. And then you found yourself in Abraham Maslow's classroom and he was raising questions that you had been contemplating since childhood and you were just completely inspired. And I remember your line too, which was, 
I lost the girl, but I found my passion. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, you describe the way your relationship with Abe Maslow developed and the way he introduced you to Vera. And I'm pronouncing her name correctly, right? It's Vera. Yeah. yeah. So if my math serves me correctly, you are approaching 70 years of marriage. Yeah, it's been uh, 66 and a half years That's... and counting. Yeah, and wow. wonderful years. Mm -hmm. And they still are. Uh, it's, it's interesting, yeah. I remember, uh, I, 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 I want to kind of go into this a little bit, your experience of, of marriage. And if you're up for it, I have a couple questions for you. So. First, I just want to quote something that I, I thought was beautiful, just a line that really struck a chord with me. Um, you talked about how when you were a junior in, at Brandeis, you declared that you were not going to get married, that that was not for you. You didn't necessarily have any inspiring examples of marriage, and you just decided and, and proclaimed loudly and frequently that you were not going to get married. And then you met Vera. And as you wrote, then I met Vera and my resolution to remain a bachelor for life dissolved in her sunlight. <laughs> it's just it's romantic, but sincere, obviously. And yeah. so I, I want to ask a question about your relationship with her. And the first question is actually, um, what is a quality of Vera's that she had at the time you met her that you love and that she still has it's always been true of her it's serenity mm. she is the most serene person i've ever met and i've met a lot of people after i met vera um she has a way of looking at the world that um has influenced me a lot she's very open uh, very forgiving, very non-judgmental. She's very sharp, um, but she does not um, judge people. And there's this, a quality of serenity. And the thing that really struck me as we got to know each other, um, she is a survivor of the Holocaust. She grew up in Budapest and uh, had a very rough time in the uh, 1940s uh, when Hitler uh, took over Hungary um, and managed uh, to survive. And uh, her experience was a difficult one and a very powerful one. But instead of embittering her, it sort of opened her heart. And she began to, she looked at everything, little kids playing, um, flowers growing in the field, wildflowers, beautiful sunset, anything that was happening, she saw it in, in all of its qualities, all of its positive qualities. And she could see positive qualities in me. I mean, I was a very um, rough hewn, person when we met, when she and I met. And um, 
I think I think she saw um, my uh, whatever intelligence and uh, wisdom and uh, talent I might have. She saw it way way before I did, mm. and um, that she had that quality not just when she looked at me, but when she looked at everybody and everything in her purview. Wow. I'm, 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 I was very lucky. And you know, I, I, uh, some time ago, uh, uh, not too long ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago, uh, when I had already established myself pretty much, and we went back, I, I was, I had a visiting professorship at Williams College. Um, in Massachusetts, and um, uh, so which is not too far away from Brandeis, and um, so they invited me back to give a colloquium at Brandeis, and they established a an award in my honor and things like that. And I went back there, and a couple of my old professors were there. Vera and I went back, uh, and one of the professors, who was a a young instructor at the time that we were seniors in college, a guy named Ricardo Morant, very nice guy, said that at the time that uh, Vera and I were courting when, in our senior year, there were also two graduate students who were very much interested in Vera. And Rick Morant said that at every faculty meeting before they started with the business of the day, uh, people would ask each other, well, what's happening with the Vera sweepstakes? Who seems <laughs> to be ahead right now? And uh, it's, uh, a small college like Brandeis was at the time is a little bit like a small town, you know? And I, I was charmed by that. I, I didn't think they noticed, but of course <laughs> they did. Well, congratulations for winning that sweepstakes. <laughs> that was <laughs> the, best, the best thing I could have ever won. Mm. Yeah, and it's 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 funny to think back to uh, Uncle Fred and how you described two very important decisions that you ended up making that he tried to try to persuade you to make the opposite decision, like to not go to college and to not marry her. And uh, so it's just it's interesting to reflect back on on that too. That sometimes our guideposts are not necessarily pointing in the right direction and for you to kind of uh in the case of education really trust your brother and trust yourself and then especially with marrying vera i don't think you ever were were swayed in any way by his attempt to persuade you not to marry but it's it, it certainly took note of that of the way that there's not all you know all, all signs are not necessarily pointing in the right direction for our lives. Yeah. And you have to, I mean, at important choice points in a person's life. And what could be more important than deciding in a direction of whether or not to go to college? I mean, I was not a very good student in high school. Uh, I was bored in high school and never worked very hard. But I didn't know that I wasn't working very hard. I just thought maybe I didn't have what it takes, mm. you know. I, um, but um, so when my father died in my junior year of high school, 
I, I think um, my uncles were a little bit afraid that they might have to support our family, have to support my mother and sister. Um, so they were eager for me to take a job. My brother was already in college. They figured he might as well finish, but they needed me to take a job so that I could support my mother and sister. And my brother was adamantly opposed to that. And he said, uh, you know, oh, no, no, Elliot's going to college. And I didn't know because I didn't know whether I was college material and we didn't have any money. Um, but when I took the SATs, uh, I got what I later learned was an astronomical score, which uh, astonished my high school teachers and me. I, I didn't realize it, but, that I was smart. And uh, so I, and I, I got a scholarship to Brandeis on the basis of the SAT score not on the basis of my grades in high school. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, my, my brother who was really uh, wise beyond his years uh, said, you know, what, when my uncle Fred said, well, but who's gonna support your mother? And uh, my brother said, she can work. Mm. She did it before. And it turned out, of course, she got a job uh, um, as a saleswoman in a department store and loved it. Mm. Um, she had never worked once she was married, but uh, she loved working there and it was good for her and certainly good for the rest of us. Mm. Beautiful. And when, when, <laughs> when, it looked, when I announced that I was going to marry Vera, uh, my uncle Fred thought it was a mistake because uh, she was from a foreign country. She, her parents uh, weren't even living here. We didn't know any, the family didn't know anything about her. Um, it's some, I think he said something like, it's hard enough to have a happy marriage when two people are from the same culture, but from different cultures, you don't, you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I only laughed at that because <laughs> by that time I was sure of Vera, of, as of nothing else in the world, uh, that she was the right person for me. Um, but, you know, my Uncle Fred, God bless him, had a, a very conventional view of things. And um, you have to know in this world, even when you're only 18 years old, who to take advice from and who mm. not to take advice from. Mm. Hmm. Do you think that your and Vera's expertise in psychology has helped you have a great marriage? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, I don't know about expertise, but just social psychology is a wonderful lens mm. uh, through which to view the world. I, I love social psychology. Mm. I love the things we know about human behavior, especially human interaction, how people fall in love and how they influence one another and how they, how prejudice works and mm. things like that. I, I can't imagine anything more important than that and than that kind of knowledge. 
And that's why, you know, to go back to one of your earlier questions or one of the points you made, but I was majoring in economics because I had to choose a major. And um, the only reason I majored in economics was because my father was unemployed during the Great Depression. Um, he had owned a very small dry goods store. Um, but he lost it in the depression and then he, he he couldn't he couldn't find a job there weren't any jobs to be had he was uneducated and unskilled um and i i i saw him crying uh in at the kitchen table because he couldn't support his family so there i went to college and i didn't know what to measure and i knew what what i liked i liked literature and i I had a course in literature that I really loved. I loved uh, I loved the course I took in philosophy and logic and things like that. But I was looking for something practical. And I thought, what could be more practical than economics? Because it's about money. And I thought that's one of the reasons you go to college was to be able to earn a living. Um, and I wasn't enjoying economics mm. very much, but I thought I had to do that. When, as you say, I wandered quite by accident into a class being taught by Abraham Maslow, and it astonished me. I mean, I, I, I was holding hands with this young woman that I was quoting, uh, but I quickly dropped her hand and started to take notes. Uh, because you yourself, when you talked about uh, not being a therapist, but being another, I, I thought, Psycho all psychologists were therapists. The only thing I thought when the word psychology was mentioned, I thought, yeah, these are people who, uh, like Freud, do mm -hmm. psychotherapy. Um, and so when I heard Maslow's talk, I thought, my God, there's a whole science mm. where people are investigating exciting things, like why do people hate each other? Mm. How does that come about? And mm. And it, I think you mentioned that it, it, it brought me back to when I was nine years old and, and used to get beaten up occasionally uh, by anti-Semitic teenagers on my way home at night from Hebrew school, where I, my parents made me go to Hebrew school to learn Hebrew uh, and learn a little bit about uh, uh, Jewish history. Uh, but I would be, I'd have to go through this really anti-Semitic neighborhood in order to get back to my house. Um, and I remember after one of these uh, drubbings, when I was nine years old, nursing a bloody nose and a split lip and wondering why these kids hated me so much when they didn't even know me. And then thinking, gee, if they got to know me better and found out what a a sweet and unthreatening person I was, would they like me better? And if they grew to like me better, might that make them hate other Jews a little less than they hate Jews right now? Um, <laughs> and then uh, 10 years later, when I wandered into Abe Maslow's class, uh, he's raising the very same questions. And I thought, oh my God, there's, there's a whole science called social psychology, I guess, that's, that's devoted 
to answering questions like that. Mm. That was a revelation. And I switched my major to psychology the very next day. I love it. I love it. And I, I gosh, I, I share your passion. And I know your passion is, uh, you know, like a aged fine wine. And my passion is younger, but I, I share your passion wholeheartedly. I just think it's the most fascinating and important subject that there is. And social psychology in particular, I teach a few types of psychology, including biological psychology and research methods and introduction to psychology. And they're all great, but social psychology has a special place in my heart just because of the importance of understanding, like you said, the roots of human violence and human aggression and hate and um, the, the psychology of our interactions and love and everything positive as well. There's a, there's a really good, I'll just mention it to you and to listeners in case people haven't seen it. There was a documentary that came out recently called White Right by a film producer by the name of Dia Khan. And basically they, she is a Muslim woman and she gets to know white supremacists and she becomes very close to them. She's in their houses, in their apartments, talking about their childhoods. And, and, and although some of these men in the documentary seem too far gone, many of them transform before your eyes as they finally get to know somebody that they supposedly hate, who's from a group that they hate. And it just, you know, your comment about wondering as a kid if whether those bullies got to know you better, if they would maybe hate all Jewish people less. And I think that's actually quite profound and that so many people who are hateful don't actually know anyone from the group that they hate. And once they get to know someone from that group, it changes their perception dramatically. And again, in this, as disgusting as much of this documentary is, because, you know, completely uncensored, you see racism and hate at its extreme and uncensored. Um, as, as hard as it is to watch that, it ends up being giving you hope and showing you that even the most hateful people can change. And the key is to facilitate relationships between them and the people that they seem to hate. Yeah, and it's often it's the quality of the interaction that mm -hmm. they can have with the person, with the group of people that they hate that really counts because um, we, if we're hating some, a particular group, and it isn't necessarily that we don't know anybody in that group, we certainly don't know them well, but we do have interactions with them and the interactions we have with, with them are colored by the, mm -hmm. by the pre-existing hatred so that we tend to see them in the worst possible light. And that's why, um, we'll be talking about the jigsaw classroom, but that that's an invention of my students that my students and I made, which is a way of bringing people together that virtually guarantees they're going to have good relationships with each other because 
they cooperate and they they help each other out and they help each other learn important things and that kind of relationship really expedites um, a reduction in any existing prejudice mm. yeah and and perhaps we can we can flow into that topic um because we're going there naturally the, the jigsaw classroom I, I understand this was something you and your students developed when you were at the university of texas and yeah. where you know an area of the u.s where racism is particularly rampant and you know and at that time especially for when you were there um there was definitely not integration but serious remnants of segregation and separation and so I remember you described the jigsaw classroom as basically restructuring the classroom and the learning experience from one of being competitive to one of being cooperative. And the, the effects of this are just something to write home about. So can you, can you describe in, in just a little bit more detail what this technique entails? Well, it's, it's simply, it involves uh, breaking the classroom down into small groups of five or six, four or five or six kids in a group. And you try to make each group as diverse as possible, uh, ethnically, racially, and in terms of gender. So you have boys and girls in the fifth, say the fifth grade, uh, boys, girls, black kids, white kids, Mexican-American kids, all represented in a particular group. And then the lesson is broken down into N segments. So if you have five kids in a group, you break it down into five sections. And so let's say the lesson is uh, the life of Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, uh, you, you break your life down into five parts um her girlhood uh her young adulthood her marriage to franklin delano roosevelt becoming first lady after roosevelt's death working with the united nations each of those is a separate segment and then each kid is given that one piece of the action and is given an opportunity to learn it not to necessarily to memorize it, but to be familiar with it and to work with other people from different groups who have had that same segment so they can discuss how to best present it. And then they meet back into their jigsaw group really well primed to, to present their set segment. And each kid, rather than competing with the other kids and raising their hands to see who can get the teacher's attention, are now in a position where they have to listen to one another, to pay attention to one another, to ask really good questions of the other so that they can get as much information from each person as they possibly can about that segment. So each person has a gift, a special gift mm. of that segment, and it's the only way that the other kids can get at the segment, so they damn well better listen to the kid and if the kid is having trouble, having a little difficulty because he's shy or because he hasn't learned it that well, ask him good questions like a good interviewer would to help bring out the material that he has inside of him. 
And in doing that, it's the give and take of cooperation. They become like a very smooth running basketball team. It doesn't matter who gets the bucket. You keep passing the ball around until someone's open and can score. That's the way this is. They, they, they really pay attention and they learn what's good about the other person. And they learn that the Mexican-American kid that they thought was stupid because he never raised his hand in the competitive classroom, they now see that he's really very smart that he's, he can be articulate if you give him enough space to be able to express himself. And what we found with these experiments is that compared to um, traditional classrooms being taught by the best teachers in that grade in the system, in the entire Austin system, students in the jigsaw classroom learning the same material learned it better, um, they uh, became less prejudiced against one another, against minority groups in general. Um, they liked school more, absenteeism went down, um, and, and it became a really positive experience. So it was good educationally, and it was really good for prejudice reduction and for enjoyment of the educational process. It was it was um, the most exciting research I've ever done. Wow. I, I remember you talked about how you even observed the kids at resource at resource recess um, when they're, you know, totally free to do whatever they want and hang out with whoever they want. And you found that the kids who had participated in the jigsaw classroom were integrated on the playground. They were actually choosing to form relationships with people of different backgrounds and ethnicities. And, and that, that part really stood out to me. That was, that was very exciting. And, and, you know, it's understandable in a newly desegregated school that if you look at the playground, if in traditionally run schools, black kids are hanging out with black kids, brown kids are hanging out with brown kids, white kids are hanging out with brown, with white kids. And that's understandable mm -hmm. because yeah, it, they're a little nervous. They're a little uncomfortable with the other groups. And so they hang out with their with the kids that are most like them. Of course, it's understandable. Mm -hmm. But when we did Jigsaw, we saw that there was a lot of intermingling. And, mm -hmm. and you can see that almost immediately. Usually for the, for the kind of results, the formal results that I'm talking about, to kick in usually takes two or three weeks of Jigsaw. And we did our, we collected our data after six weeks and it really stood out. But the teachers could tell within two or three weeks that the whole atmosphere in the classroom had changed. It became more positive, more helpful, more friendly, warmer. It became a really good experience for all of the kids. I love it. It's such a nice concrete immediately applicable teaching methodology. And I, I can vow to incorporate it more into my classrooms as well. I mean, I think it'll, it would scale up to every level of education too. And, it, and it's so much more than a group project. You know, I think some students hear that and they're a little averse to it and have this image of, 
a couple of people not doing a lot and a couple of people doing everything. But this is much different than that. It's just structured in a way where there's no room for that, where the contributions are equal, where everyone has a healthy amount of pressure on them to, to do their part and will be held accountable for it because they're a key link in the chain of the whole project. So I, I love it. And, and I imagine that for some teachers, particularly in a diverse classroom, there might be a, a funny feeling, a little discomfort with choosing people to be in a group based on their ethnicity, you know, like, oh, that this kid's white, this kid's Mexican, this kid's black, so they need to be together. I, I wonder if teachers are at all uncomfortable with that, but I imagine it's, it's worth overcoming that funny feeling and promoting that integration anyway. I think so. I, I, and you're right. It, it's any, any novel system has its, its defects initially, but once, once it gets rolling, teachers loved it. Teachers mm. absolutely loved it. But it, my, you know, my great disappointment is that, you know, if I were suddenly, if Joe Biden appointed me the czar of education, uh, if I had that kind of power, I would make sure that every school in the country did jigsaw at least for one hour a day uh, in each classroom. It doesn't require full full bore. It can happen in a very very small part of the classroom time uh, because I think it would have a major effect in helping people uh, especially when you, you get them young, when you get them in the fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, before their prejudices have a chance to solidify and become more difficult to change. Because, you know, it, there is a self-fulfilling prophecy about it. If you're a, a skinny little white kid like I was when I was uh, that age, um, and you're uh, afraid of uh, black kids, um, then your fear comes out and you don't approach them and then you find them unapproachable. Mm -hmm. That's the self-fulfilling prophecy in action. Um, but if you get the kids early enough where they, and you, you in effect force them to have this cooperative experience, they begin to see things that they never would have seen before and experience a kind of a warmth that cooperation brings that they might never have had without it. Mm. And what's interesting is, perhaps this will be a, a segue, that I, I imagine that some kids experience cognitive dissonance in those experiences, especially if they come from a, a family that is to whatever degree prejudice or assumptive about other groups, right? And so if, if a kid comes in thinking that some ethnic group is, you know, not as smart as them, let's say, then they experience that kid in action and showing, showing that they're completely intelligent. There's a dissonance there. You know, there's this inconsistency between my preconceived notion and my lived observation. And, and that's, that's a good dissonance to stimulate. It can, it can produce a lot of dissonance. And, um, um, 
I think each kid has to reduce that dissonance in whatever way that he can. Like, for example, to begin to conclude that maybe uh, my mother and father don't know these kids as well as I do. Right. And I might begin to inquire exactly how much of experience have you had? Mm. And a lot of a lot of prejudice comes from distance and um, observing at a distance. Mm. Um, and you know, if you if you listen to AM talk radio or Fox News, you'll get a whole different uh, view of the world than if you um, pay attention to what you're doing in the proper situation, mm. where which brings out the best in people. Hmm. Great point. Well, let's let's talk about cognitive dissonance. Um, it was, you know, a funny story of when you were at Stanford and you know you heard of this professor named Leon Festinger and you were a bit nervous to approach him and then you finally approached him and perhaps your nervousness was justified upon meeting him as he was um, a little bit harsh and not necessarily uh, friendly. But um, I remember the story of, you know, he had his unpublished manuscript of, of his new book, and, which introduced the idea of cognitive dissonance and that he gave it to you to read and it was just a funny part of your story when he was like I, so i heard you have kids and at first you were kind of touched that he knew something about you but then you realized that the only reason he was asking was to basically warn you that <laughs> to make sure your kids don't ruin this manuscript and get jam on it um and then you you took it home with you and you started reading it just to get a feel for it and then hours later you found yourself reading the entire thing in one sitting and that it was the most exciting book you had ever read. So it, it still is. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, Festinger was a, 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 I loved him, but uh, he was a difficult person. Um, and uh, yeah, he had, he and I arrived at Stanford at the same time. He as a distinguished youngish professor and he was already uh, uh, probably the best social psychologist in the world, uh, the best living social psychologist. He was a student of Kurt Lewin's. Uh, he was about, I don't know, in his late 30s when he arrived at Stanford. And I was a first year graduate student and uh, really insecure about whether I was good enough. Um, and uh, everybody talked about him as being a genius and as being a very difficult person who super critical and uh, harshly critical. And um, so that it, I, <laughs> I had the audacity to say, uh, I'm thinking of taking your seminar, uh, Dr. Festinger, can you, but I don't know much about social psychology, can you give me something to read? And he was very disdainful uh, as he handed me a typed copy of his book. Uh, but it was a, I read it and it was great. I, I really loved it. But then I have to tell you the next step, which is I, I took his seminar and I saw that everything people said about him was true. Mm. He was 
incredibly smart and sharp um, and also very harsh. And um, he assigned a term paper. I have to tell you my favorite story, my favorite Festinger story, which I, <laughs> I gave a eulogy when he died in 1989. Um, his widow asked me to give uh, a eulogy for him at his memorial service, which was uh, several months after his death. Um, and this is the, and I told the same story at his uh, memorial service and it's, it was, he assigned a term paper and I wrote a term paper like I've often done and handed it in. And a few days later, uh, I'm walking past his office on my way to, I had a desk in a big room. I was a teaching assistant. It was a teaching assistant's room and I was walking toward it, past his office and he called my name. He says, Aronson, come in here. I wanna to talk to you. I went into his office and he took my paper off of the stack on his desk. And I don't know if you can see this, but I'll pretend this is the paper. And he held it up between his thumb and forefinger you know, <laughs> like this, turned his head away as if he was handing me a smelly piece of garbage. <laughs> and he said, I believe this is yours. And so, so I, I took it and I said, uh, I guess you didn't like it very much. <laughs> you know, trying to be, to tough it out with a little false bravado. Mm -hmm. And he gave me a look, which is hard to imitate. I wish I could, but it's sort of like he put up, he hunched his shoulders, put up his hands like this. And, had this sour look on his face. Anyone who's ever worked with him has seen that look, mm. sometimes often. And he said, it, the look is a mixture of contempt and pity. Contempt because you're wasting his time. Mm. And he valued his time enormously. Pity because he felt sorry for me that I had been born brain damaged. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the look. And he said, yeah, that's right. I didn't like it very much. When I gave the eulogy at his memorial service, and I said, anyone who's ever worked with him knows that look. And every, half the audience burst into laughter because they had worked with him including his wife okay um and that's you know you usually don't get a lot of laughter at a memorial service right. um i took the paper back to my office and i it took me a few minutes before i built up the courage i have to tell you i mean i was here i was with a wife and a baby and another baby on the way and I was a little bit afraid that I might be flunking out of graduate school if this guy thought I was an idiot, right? Um, so I was hesitant to open the paper because I was afraid of, you know, what, what kind of marginalia would there be? How many, how many angry words would be in the, in the margin? I opened it up finally, and there wasn't 
a mark on it. So I said, what is this? So I, I gathered all my courage, walked back into Festinger's office and said, um, Dr. Festinger, there must be a problem here because um, you didn't you didn't tell me what I did wrong. So how am I supposed to know what I did wrong? You didn't write anything in the margins. And he gave me that look again. He said, what? You don't have enough respect for your own thinking to follow your ideas to their logical conclusion. And you want me to do that? Mm -hmm. This is graduate school, not kindergarten. So I took the paper and I walked the 26 miles back to my office mm -hmm. um, and I reread it and it was a lousy piece of work. It was not well thought out. I, I tried to read it through Festinger's eyes yeah. and he was right. And my, so th th there was another choice point in my life. I could quit the seminar. I was already beginning to think, hey, this is a guy I might like to work with. And then I'm thinking, do I really want to work with this guy? Does he want to work with me? He wouldn't mm -hmm. want to work with me and I wouldn't want to work with him. I can't, I don't want to take this abuse. Maybe I can work with somebody else. Uh, if indeed I can stay in school without being kicked out. But then I thought, but he is a really smart guy. So I went home and I and I spent the next three days rewriting that paper. And I really worked very, very hard. I never worked harder on anything before that, like I worked on that. And uh, then I brought it into his office and I came into his office. I put it on his desk in front of him. And I said, maybe you'll like this one better. And then I walked back into my office down the hall and to his great credit, he must have dropped whatever he was doing because 20 minutes later, he came into my office, sat on the corner of my desk, put his hand on my shoulder, put the paper in front of me and said, now this is worth criticizing. Yay. And that to me, it's a kind of a funny statement. This is worth criticizing, right. <laughs> but it, for him, it was very meaningful because mm -hmm. he doesn't, what he was telling me at that point is if you're not going to do your best work, get the fuck out of my sight. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. But if you meet me halfway, if you give me your best shot, then I will give you everything I have including my time, which is the most precious thing in the world for me. Mm. And at that moment, we became teacher and student. And eventually, within a year or two, we became really close friends. Mm. Um, it was it was a boundary that I had to cross, mm -hmm. not him. And uh, that's the way he was. He did not suffer fools gladly. And I, I used to keep telling him when I was in my third year at Stanford, I would say, Leon, for Christ's sakes, there are all these really smart graduate students 
who would love to work with you, but they're scared shitless. Mm. He said, so what? Mm. If they really want to work with me, they'll cross that, that river. Yes. And that, that was his attitude. And um, I can see the wisdom in it. it, mm -hmm. it I, I couldn't emulate that. I tried to emulate him in a lot of ways, but I couldn't, you know, I, there's talent out there and you really want to develop it. For Leon, it was, no, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll let the talent come to me. Mm. Who can argue with that? He's produced some really terrific students. Indeed. Yeah, that's funny. That's exactly what I was going to ask you was whether you found yourself adopting that approach in your role as a professor, but it sounds like not exactly. Perhaps maybe you've been a little bit more willing to, to meet people where they are. It, it, you'll have to ask my graduate students <laughs> yes. uh, because they, they probably see me in a different light than I see myself. I, mm -hmm. I was tough on them, mm -hmm. but uh, I, don't think, I don't think anyone could ever be as tough as Leon was mm -hmm. on, on, his, on people who wanted to work with him or people who were afraid to approach him. And of course, I also had, I mean, Festinger was my th the th third academic mentor that I had. I had Abraham Maslow as, an, as a role model. Mm -hmm. I had Dave McClelland, where I got a master's degree at Wesleyan as a role model. Uh, and they were quite different in their approach than Festinger. And I think, again, like I, I think I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, I think I've incorporated all of these guys yeah. into into you know and plus my own personality whatever that is and and mm -hmm. uh but in terms of being a mentor i i think i could be as tough as leon was at times but also had uh other qualities that mm -hmm. uh, i think the students found easier to approach mm -hmm. and it's amazing how much respect leon ended up having for you i mean the way that he just admired your your high impact experimentation and your i mean he even was willing to finally after i think you said about 10 years or so understand your critique on his theory of cognitive dissonance and he even uh, did that yeah yeah and and perhaps we can we can go there now so i thought it could be helpful, I suppose, for watchers and listeners here. If I read um, a little bit of your book here, um, the part where you basically explain cognitive dissonance, particularly as Festinger described it. So I'll read that and then I'll, I'll ask you to talk about your, the way you tightened and transformed it and your insight about it. So I'll just read this little passage here. You wrote that Festinger started with a simple proposition. If individuals held two cognitions that were psychologically inconsistent, they would experience dissonance, a negative drive like hunger or thirst. Unlike hunger or thirst, it is a cognitive drive, but just as unpleasant. Accordingly, they would be motivated to reduce dissonance as much as they would attempt to reduce hunger or thirst. In this case, 
by trying to change one or both of the dissonant cognitions to bring them into consonance or harmony. And then uh, Festinger's defining example was that of the lifelong cigarette smoker who discovers that smoking cigarettes causes cancer. The smoker experiences dissonance. The cognition, I smoke cigarettes, is dissonant with the cognition, cigarette smoking produces cancer. And so clearly the most efficient way for a person to reduce dissonance in such a situation is to give up smoking. Um, I'll stop there. And then, you know, as you've taught about, you know, I certainly learned this from your textbooks that we reduce dissonance sometimes by changing, you know, in the case of the smoker decides to stop smoking so that now they understand I'm not a smoker because smoking causes cancer. Um, but also sometimes we rationalize and we justify and we add self-affirming cognitions like, yes, okay, I smoke, but I also exercise and that must be offsetting it. So the, the key is that we are not comfortable being inconsistent within ourselves and this discomfort motivates us in the same way hunger motivates us to eat. This discomfort motivates us to achieve consistency within ourselves, either again by changing our actions or changing our beliefs or making some change to, to address this discrepancy. So that's the essential idea of cognitive dissonance. A common example too in the world is when people hold a certain belief and then they encounter disconfirming evidence. And so now they have these dissonant cognitions. But I thought that your, again, the way you tightened and transformed the theory was just so important and so accurate. And so can you, can you talk about that now? What you added right. to this? But it wasn't, it, I don't, I never regarded it as a transformation, but more, as you say, uh, as a tightening. Um, because there were, when, while I was still a graduate student, uh, by the way, Leon invented that theory around 1956 and uh, published his book in 57. But in his book, there's very, very little research um, to support the theory. The big, the big leap in research occurred while I was at Stanford when um, Festinger and Carl Smith did their, their, their really what I consider to be the single most important experiment in social psychology. Uh, that if you tell a lie for a dollar, you come to believe it more than if you tell the same lie for $20. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that is the reason it's an, it, I consider it the most important experiment ever done in social psychology was because it flew in the face of reinforcement theory, which was the dominant theory at the time, and which is largely true, but is the notion of secondary reinforcement, which is that anything associated with positive things is liked and anything associated with negative things is disliked is largely true, especially for rats, pigeons, and decorticate human beings. But for most of us, we think. And because we think, if we tell a lie for 
and I paid a lot to lie, in effect was saying, I sold my soul, but it was worth it. I got $20 for it. Mm. Whereas if I, if it, afterwards I say, I sold my soul for a fucking dollar, what the hell? Why did I do that? You know, then we have to start saying, well, I didn't really sell my soul because the lie I told is not really a lie. It's mm. actually, there's a lot of truth in what I said. That's the dissonance reduction thing. The other, while I was at Stanford, Judd Mills and I did a, an experiment where we showed if you work hard and go through hell and high water in order to get into a discussion group, you'll like the group better than if you get in with very little effort. Why? Because anything negative about that group is dissonant with the fact that I worked hard to get into it. Why would I work hard to get into a, a lousy group? So I, in my own mind, unconsciously, I downplay the negative parts of the group and I upgrade the positive parts of the group. Yeah. That's so those two experiments. And then Judd Mills did an experiment showing that if you cheat on an exam, you soften your attitude toward cheating. Mm. If you resist the temptation to cheat, you harden your attitude toward cheating. It's a very interesting experiment and it shows how people change their attitudes on the basis of how they behave in a in a difficult situation in a in a in an iffy situation mm. those three experiments all came out they were done in 57 58 and came out in 59 and they really transformed the way we think about these things now mm. while i was at stanford now getting back to your question yeah yeah um there were there were some fuzzy things about cognitive dissonance theory. We, we, we there, there were some situations where we were really clear on what was dissonant. For example, telling a lie for a little bit of money is clearly dissonant. Working hard to get into a boring group is really dissonant. Mm -hmm. But there were some situations where we're really not sure whether dissonance exists or not. For example, um, and this is an example I gave to Leon. Um, guy goes driving in a car on a on a, cold, a a rainy night in the dark, and he gets a flat tire. And he gets out of the car, close to the trunk, and finds out that he doesn't have a jack. Lonely country road. Does he experience distance? Leon said no. He's scared. He feels um, uh, helpless, nervous. But where's the dissonance? And I thought, no, no, there has to be dissonance there. Um, and I, I puzzled over that one for a while. And then I came up with the notion that dissonance makes its clearest prediction when the self-concept is threatened. And since most people have reasonably high self-concepts, that is, most people think they're better than average uh, at almost everything, at intelligence, at um, warmth, uh, at being a good driver or whatever. Most people think they're better than average. So if they do something 
that makes them feel stupid, incompetent, or immoral, that will arouse dissonance. Mm. And in the in the uh, Jack experiment, in the flat tire experiment, you feel stupid. In if you go back and look at the uh, initiation experiment, the one about working hard for something, why would I work hard to get into a stupid group? So instead of saying, the way Festinger would put it is, the cognition, I worked hard to get into this group is distant with the cognition with anything about that group that's boring, dull, stupid. I would reframe that and say, I'm a really smart person and I did the stupid thing. I went through hell and high water in order to get into uh, a lousy group, a boring group. Yes. Now on the surface, it doesn't seem like much of a change. And it isn't, but it's bringing the self into it. And, and, and the point I made is not this is a new theory or anything like that. It's dissonance theory, but it makes its strongest, clearest prediction when the self is involved, when a person's conception of his of who he is is threatened. Um, at the time, Festinger hated it. He thought mm. that I was narrowing the scope of the theory. Uh, and in a philosophy of science that the way I regard philosophy of science, a theory should be as broad as it can possibly be and as precise as it can mm. possibly be. And those two aspects of it are often in conflict. So what I thought I was doing was narrowing the theory a bit, but tightening it a lot. Yeah. First thing I disagreed at that time, 10 years later, he confessed to me that I was right, mm. which is the only time in our history as two colleagues and close friends that he ever said, told me that he was wrong and I was right about mm -hmm. anything. Okay. If I were you at that moment, I would have said, thank you, Mr. Confestinger. <laughs> <laughs> Let me read a, a paragraph just to, you explained it perfectly well, but just to just add more to what you're saying here. So you wrote that, like you just said, you know, what I thought at the time was a minor adjustment turned out to be a major revision, one that transformed dissonance theory from a theory about attitudes into a theory about the self. And then you write, because beliefs about the self are the most important cognitions that people hold, then dissonance is most painful and therefore most likely to motivate change when our behavior or attitudes are inconsistent with who we think we are. And I think this, yeah, I mean, you just, you improved the theory, I think. And even that example that we, we talked about, about smoking, that's the go-to example. I mean, this is what most um, students hear as the first example of cognitive dissonance is the smoker example. And even in that, I think it can be reframed in exactly the way you reframed the guy on the, on the, on the road by himself example, because the, the reframe here is that, you know, I am a smart person, or even I'm someone who makes good decisions. And then there's this evidence that smoking is a bad decision. And so it's not that the, I, I see it your way, you know, like, it's not that there's these dissonant thoughts of, 
I smoke and smoking is bad. It's, it's underneath that is I'm a smart person who makes good decisions and this is a dumb decision. And that's the discrepancy there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and reframing it that way opens up all kinds of possibilities. For example, we can take Donald Trump as an example. Um, we, you know, we all know some of Trump's outrageous behaviors, like he can't abide making a mistake. Mm. Uh, even if it's a slip of the tongue, mm. he will go back and cover it over as if he meant to say it. Mm. So if he's saying, for example, I think this is a real example, he's having trouble reading the teleprompter while making a speech. And he says, um, he wants to say our very future is at stake. And he says, our very furniture is at stake and our future. So <laughs> he pretends that all along he meant to say both the furniture and the future, you see, and he does that all the time. Mm. Um, he can't be wrong. He will overestimate the size of a crowd at, the, at his inauguration, and he will fight and argue about that all the time. And everybody says, who gives a damn? But he does. And the way I think of it is, if you look at self-esteem and the self-concept, there are two dimensions to it. it can be There's a high-low dimension, and there's a well-grounded fragile dimension mm. so and i see donald trump as having high fragile self-esteem mm. which means a person with high self-esteem that's well grounded who screws up can say i screwed up mm -hmm. i did a stupid thing i really did a stupid thing but that doesn't make me a stupid person I know I'm a smart person, but I did do a stupid thing. What can I learn from that? How can I correct that mistake? That's one of the things that Carol Tavers and I write about in our book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. How do you, how do you learn from your mistakes rather than try to cover them up? Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump never learns from his mistakes because he's too busy trying to cover them up because his self-esteem is so fragile. It's very high. He thinks he's the smartest person in the world. He thinks he knows more about the Bible than anybody. He, he thinks all of these things. I'm going to let that phone ring for a little while. It'll shut itself off. Yeah, no <laughs> One more ring and then we can continue. <laughs> okay. Um, so he doesn't learn from his mistakes. Mm -hmm. He's busy because his self-esteem is so fragile that to admit to a mistake is to flirt with the possibility that he's stupid mm. okay, uh, or incompetent, and he can't abide that. Mm. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a dangerous person to have as president of a superpower, mm. very dangerous. Um, and so I've been talking about that for four years, mm -hmm. and uh, I think we dodged a big one in the in the most recent election. I agree. 
Yeah, it's and and it's fascinating, you know, like like in in this book, mistakes were made, but not by me. You you make the point, or you and um, Carol Tavers make the point that it's not just that, you know, in the case of Donald Trump, it's not just that he's trying to convince everyone else that he really did mean to say furniture. It's that he's actually convinced himself that he meant to say that, and and that's where uh, it becomes. It, it, it's more than just a lie to the public. You've actually, you actually believe that this is the reality. And I think so. Yeah. But it, it doesn't matter too much when we're talking about furniture, but mm, right. it, the big decisions matter. And when we first, when Carol and I first wrote that book, it was in the waning stages of the George W. Bush mm. administration. And uh, the, the big issue that we talk about there, was, which was and remains a big issue, is whether Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And the reason that we went to war in Iraq, according to Bush and Powell and everybody else who were advising him, is that we thought that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Well. The information coming in to Bush from the CIA and other agencies was mixed. It was not clear. What George Bush was hell-bent to bring down Saddam Hussein. So he, he viewed that information not the way a, a, a person would normally view it, of weighing the pros and cons, but with a bias toward accepting the evidence that suggested that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. And so he went in not trying to pull the wool over our eyes. I think most liberals think that he was lying to us. I think he was lying to himself. Hmm. He was reading the information in a biased way. And afterwards, when he wrote his book, as all former presidents, except maybe for Trump, will do, when he wrote his book, he admitted that there weren't weapons of mass destruction and it was a mistake to go to war on that basis. Mm. Uh, now, the interesting thing is, for months, when we invaded Iraq and the war was going on and we were winning the war, it looked like we were winning the war for a while, we didn't realize it was endless, um, uh, when people said, well, where are the weapons of mass destruction? George W. Bush and Cheney and all the others kept saying, oh, they'll turn up. Iraq is a big country. Well, nobody, no president in his right mind would go way that far out on a limb if he didn't believe it himself. Because sooner or later, if he believed there were no weapons of mass destruction, sooner or later he would be found out. Right. So he, he didn't leave himself any cover. And I think that is because he ended up convincing himself that there were weapons mm. of mass destruction. Mm. Very important stuff. Yes, indeed. And I, I remember you pointed out that in his book, he described the, he described his experience as having this sickening feeling when he found out that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And like you said, that sickening feeling is dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. And we've all had that right, right in the pit of our stomach. 
it's a cognition that occurs up here, but the sickening feeling is mm. in the pit of our stomach when we realize, yeah, mm. I really screwed up this time. Yeah. You um, you know, a, a big theme in that book is self-justification. And I just think from your book, The Social Animal, you have a, a great example. And I thought I would just read it for watchers and listeners here. And then and then you can elaborate on the way we justify our actions to ourselves. And so you, you say in chapter five of this book, picture the following scene. A young man named Sam is being hypnotized. The hypnotist gives Sam a post-hypnotic su suggestion telling him that when the clock strikes four, he will go to the closet, get his raincoat and galoshes and put them on, grab an umbrella, walk eight blocks to the supermarket and purchase six bottles of bourbon and then return, return home. Sam is told that as, as soon as he re-enters his apartment, he will snap out of it and be himself again. So when the clock strikes four, Sam immediately heads for the closet, dons his raincoat and galoshes, grabs his umbrella and trudges out the door on his quest for bourbon. There are a few strange, strange things about this errand. One, it's a clear sunshiny day. There isn't a cloud in the sky. Two, there is a liquor store half a block away. And three, Sam doesn't even drink. Okay, so Sam arrives home, opens the door, re-enters his apartment, snaps out of his trance and discovers himself standing there in his raincoat and galoshes with his umbrella in one hand and a huge sack of liquor bottles in the other. He looks momentarily confused. His friend, the hypnotist, says, hey, Sam, where have you been? Oh, just down to the store. What did you buy? Um, um, it seems I've bought this bourbon, but you don't drink, do you? No, but... Um, I'm going to do a lot of entertaining during the next several weeks, and some of my friends do. How come you're wearing all the rain gear on such a sunny day? Well, actually, the weather is quite changeable this time of year, and I didn't want to take any chances. But there isn't any cloud in the sky. Well, you can never tell. By the way, where did you buy the liquor? Oh, uh, down at the supermarket. How come you went that far? Well, it was just such a nice day, I thought it might be fun to take a long walk. That's a perfect example. And a nice extreme example, you know, with hypnosis, someone really having no idea why they did what they did. But it's just a prime example of self-justification. In retrospect, looking at our behavior and figuring, just coming up with rational sounding excuses and explanations for why we did it. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. What, what... Uh, just, as you were talking, I was thinking... Uh, you know, my first mentor was Abraham Maslow, and Maslow's uh, great contribution is the his pyramid of basic needs, mm -hmm. uh, beginning at the bottom with the, the need for food and oxygen, and then gradually uh, shelter and things like that, until the need to love and be loved and you get to the very top of the pyramid, which is uh, self-actualization. And while you were reading that example, it dawned on me that maybe even under hypnosis, under post-hypnotic suggestion, a person who was really self-actualized would be a person with high very well-grounded mm -hmm. self-esteem who would say, you know what? 
I have no idea mm. why I went to the supermarket and bought all this bourbon. Mm -hmm. It sounds crazy to me. I must be losing it mm. because, and that would be a kind of a self-actualized person who would give up the need to justify his right. behavior totally. This is insightful. I, I, I haven't quite had you know this realization in the way I'm having it now as I listen to you. The connection between self-esteem and the groundedness of your self-esteem and self-justification. Because yeah, in a, in a way, self-justification is, as you talk about in one of your textbooks, it's a, it's a technique in impression management. It's a way of managing other people's perceptions of you, and 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 your own. And your own perception. More of yourself. important, your own mm. self-perception, mm. because it, you're threatened by the by the the possibility that you might be stupid. Mm. Whereas the person, the self-actualized person, in Maslow's terms, or the person with high, well-grounded self-esteem, in my terms, is not threatened by making a mistake. Is not threatened by doing something stupid. He knows who he is, mm. uh, and he can be maybe amused at mm. having made a mistake like that. I love that. Speaking of pyramids, one of the most interesting concepts in your book with Carol Tavers is the pyramid of choice, and I'll let you elaborate on this. But I'll just kind of um, pass you the example of the the two guys who are taking a test and they both are contemplating whether or not to cheat and one does and one doesn't but as you describe it they're like just they could have either they could each of them could have gone either way but then as they move through the pyramid of choice their thoughts about cheating change so will you will you talk about this pyramid of choice pyramid of choice it, it, i mean it, it does look like a pyramid but um, with the bottom of it being attitudes toward the thing that you're doing, in this case, cheating or not doing. So that once you make the decision, see at the pinnacle, you're right in the middle. Attitudes toward cheating. You think it might be, it's not a good thing to do, but there are a lot of worse things in the world so yeah, you know, it's not a good thing to do. So that's your attitude. Two people with almost identical attitudes, taking this exam, very important exam in their life, it's going to determine whether or not, whether or not they get a good grade in this course is determined by the exam and will determine whether or not they get accepted into medical school, which they really want to be a doctor. So suppose you're one of these guys, you go in to the exam, you think you're pretty well prepared, but then you look at the questions and you pull a complete blank and you're, you break into a cold sweat. What to do? I mean, how can, there goes medical school out the window. And then you look up and you happen to be sitting right behind the smartest person in the class. And she also happens to have very large legible handwriting so all you have to do is look over her shoulder and you can get the answers and write them down 
question is, do you cheat or not? Okay. So if you have these two guys in the same position and one of them decides to cheat while the other decides not to cheat, the person who decided to cheat slides down one side of the pyramid and begins to soften his or her attitude toward cheating, begins to convince herself that cheating isn't such a bad thing. As a matter of fact, anyone would have done it. I would be a fool not to cheat. Anybody in that position would have cheated. Um, it's just what people do. And it's a, it's a victimless crime. Yeah. The, both of them experience dissonance, whether you cheat or not cheat. If you cheat, your cognition that you're a moral person is dissonant with your cognition that you just did an immoral act. Mm -hmm. So your job is to convince yourself that everybody would have done it. And therefore, how can it be called an immoral act if, if it's something that everybody does? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's how you're reducing dissonance. Mm -hmm. If you didn't cheat, your cognition that you really wanted to go to medical school and you had a chance to do it, all you had to do was cheat in order to reduce dissonance, what do you do? You convince yourself that cheating is one of the worst things a person can do. It's not a victimless crime because if you get into medical school, you're getting in ahead of the next person in line who might be cut off from going to medical school who deserved it because they weren't a cheater like you are, okay? So that your attitude changes in order to reduce dissonance. So here they are at the top of the pyramid before they cheat. Their attitudes are almost identical. A few hours after they cheat, their attitudes are way far apart. Mm -hmm. That's the pyramid of choice. Uh, and that's the way it works. And what's interesting too is the way you talk about how when they think back, to what their attitudes were, they think that it was always like what it is at the bottom of the pyramid. They yeah. almost forget, or their their memory is so self-serving that they think, yeah, no, of course, this is what I've I always felt been. that way, and that's why I didn't cheat to begin with, or I always thought that way, and that's why cheating is a very easy, simple thing to do. And by the way, Judson Mills did that experiment. Uh, that was one of the experiments I mentioned as all taking place in the in, uh, around uh, 1957, 1958, which really nailed down cognitive dissonance. There. Mm. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's just that's a, an extremely useful concept for people to understand, and you know, it, all of this hopefully it helps me, and hopefully it's helping people recognize these patterns within themselves and these tendencies within themselves. So we've, we've been talking for almost- and I, I just want to, before you go on, I just want to say in, in a great many situations, reducing dissonance is harmless, hmm. but there are situations where it can be extremely harmful. So that um, if I was in the uh, business of giving advice, I would say, when you're making an important decision, make sure that you're not simply doing like what George Bush did, that you, you're, you're oriented to go in a particular direction, and therefore you will engage in all kinds of mm. 
confirmation bias and you know which is a, a a corollary of cognitive dissonance theory that you will that you don't do it lightly that you really be careful of self that kind of self persuasion but in most situations the, the casual decisions dissonance is very useful it helps us sleep at night dissonance reduction helps right. us sleep at night um we don't want to fret about uh about trivial things um if you make a faux pas at a cocktail party and and uh, attribute something uh to to a the poet um Robert Browning when it was really Wordsworth who wrote that poem you know oh god I made a fool of myself and stay awake all night you must say yeah those assholes they probably didn't notice anyway <laughs> and that's okay right it doesn't harm anybody mm. but there are situations where you really want to be vigilant about mm. that mm. great point yes and it's got me thinking too about how sometimes when we are on a certain trajectory when we've made a decision let's just say as an example to you know follow a certain major in college and we're starting to have these maybe experiences in the classroom where it's not that interesting i'm not inspired by this i it's i would imagine that it's easy for some people to just continuously justify their decision to major in this be to reduce the dissonance and that we could easily go too far down a path that isn't ideal for us because we're just continuing to justify the fact that we chose to follow this path. Yeah. And it's and hard. You give an example of majoring, uh, but what about something really more, e even more important than that to the world or to other people around? And, um, you know, you sell your soul to the devil on the installment plan <laughs> one step at a time uh the our book uh mistakes were made but not by me is full of examples of decent people like um magruder um who um who was uh in the nixon administration who was a very decent man who gradually did immoral things one step at a time and each step you take it's like sliding down that pyramid each step you take gets justified and then makes it more likely that you'll take the next step which is even worse than that and I use as a model for that Stanley Milgram's yes very famous experiment which um is probably the single most famous experiment ever done in social psychology uh which where the, the basic step is that you think you're giving the subject thinks he or she is giving an electric shock to someone in the next room every time they don't come up with the right answer to a particular question which is being asked and each time if you are that person, you're giving an electric shock, you increase the voltage by 15 volts. 
So if it starts at 15 and then goes to 30 and then goes to 45, those are relatively trivial shock levels. But then you start getting up into uh, 80 volts or 95 volts. And each step of the way, you convince yourself, well, that, that's not much different from the one I gave before. So I might as well go along with that. And Milgram's startling results, one might even say shocking results, <laughs> uh, is that two thirds of the people, two out of three people go all the way to 480 volts where it says on the rheostat, dangerous shock ha hazard, careful, and they do it. Um, two thirds. It's unbelievable. And that, that to me, um, is, is very, a very powerful demonstration of the one step at a time thing. Mm. Jeb Stuart Magruder was an honest, honorable man until he started to slide down that pyramid one step at a time. And when he was finally, it was like waking up from a bad dream. And he said to the judge after his sentencing, I know I did the wrong thing. And yet, I don't know how I ever got there. And we see these things repeating itself, themselves over and over again, like in the recent presidential administration where you had um, um, this woman, uh, Burks, Dr. Burks, who was supposed to be an expert on, um, on communicable diseases who's sort of nodding her head as Trump is telling all these lies about the COVID-19 situation. Um, and you go along either because you want to keep your job or because you think it's really important that someone stay in this position who is, while someone is minding the store, but it's always a mistake because as I said before, you sell your soul on the installment plan. And before you know it, you're doing things you never dreamed you would ever do. Yes. And each installment is des desensitizing, I suppose, in a way. Like, that's how I often think about what it would have been like to be in the position in the Milgram studies. And, you know, for people who don't know, not only were they administering these shocks, but they were hearing it was a recording, they didn't know it was a recording, but they were hearing the screams of pain from the people who were supposedly being shocked. And so, gosh, talk about dissonance. And, and the, to just watch them, you know, in the footage, in real time, how they're, how they're justifying this, how they're shifting the moral responsibility onto the experimenter, and just desperately reducing the, the pretty ex increasingly extreme dissonance that's arising within them. Yeah. yeah. I love that statement. You sell your soul to the devil in, in installments. That's okay. a perfect way to summarize that. It, you know, it, it, it's... Uh, my computer is talking to me. <laughs> no problem. Um, that's the the issue to me is how do you corrupt an honest person mm. and you do it in small increments um 
And, you know, Magruder's, everybody writes a book these days. So Magruder's book is full of statements like he was so honored and so flattered to be part of the White House team. And then you end up sort of um, justifying your allegiance. You're flattered by the allegiance by being part of the team. And the next thing you know, it's like waking up one morning and saying, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. You know, um, the Milgram experiment is, is a beautiful example of that. And mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it's not only a great, it, it's not really an experiment. It's a, it's a demonstration mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, experiment by definition is random distribution of subjects to experimental conditions. And, the initial experiment has only one condition. Yeah. Um, what he's comparing it with is what psychiatrists and clinical psychologists and ordinary people think would happen in that situation. And most people don't think anyone will go much further than 60 or 70 volts and then will stop. But what, what they underestimate, what we outside the situation underestimate is how powerful self-justification is mm. and how it occurs one step at a time. Mm. So how do you corrupt an honest person? One step at a time. One step at a time. And it's interesting too to think about the element of kind of what you were just alluding to, like be, becoming part of the team or becoming part of the inner circle. And um, in Philip Zimbardo's book, The Lucifer Effect, he talks about the, the, the way that the inner circle has this extremely powerful effect on the likelihood of someone conforming. And the question is, you know, how badly do you want to be part of the group that you are conforming to? And Maybe, maybe I'll share this passage, which I've committed, committed to my memory from the essay by C.S. Lewis called The Inner Circle. So if you don't mind, I'll do a little bit of a monologue, I suppose, here. But I just think it's actually um, directly relevant to what we're talking about. So in the essay, The Inner Circle, there's this passage and it goes like this. It says, to nine out of 10 of you, the choice which could lead to scoundrelism will come when it does come in no very dramatic colors. Obviously bad men, obviously threatening or bribing will almost certainly not appear over a drink or a cup of coffee disguised as a triviality and sandwiched between two jokes from the lips of a man or a woman whom you've been getting to know rather well and whom you hope to know better still, just at the moment when you are most anxious not to appear crude, naive, or prig, the hints will come. It will be the hint of something which is not quite in accordance with the technical rules of fair play, something that the public, the ignorant romantic public would never understand, something which even the outsiders in your own profession are apt to make a fuss about, but something, says your new friend, something we, and at the word we, you try not to blush for mere pleasure, something we always do. And you'll be drawn in if you are drawn in, not by desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment, 
when the cup was so near your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world to see that other man's face, that delightful, sophisticated face turn suddenly cold and contemptuous to know that you'd been tried for the inner ring, but rejected. And then it goes on after that too, but that's, I suppose, enough for now. That's very good. <laughs> and it, it's just instructive. I, I think it's, it's, it's exactly accurate, you know, yeah. that when you combine the gradual nature of conforming and, and, and immoral behavior with that drawing you into an inner circle, it's difficult for people to resist that type of conformity and that type of um, behavior. Yeah, yeah. And there, you know, we, we've had two really vivid examples of this in this country in our lifetime uh, during the Nixon administration and during the Trump administration. Uh, and the added pressure in the Trump administration is people hanging in there, even though they knew what they were doing was supporting evil mm. because they were convincing themselves that some rational people had to be there to mind the store to prevent a disaster from happening. But I think what they didn't realize was that they were being sucked in one step at a time as they were doing that, you know? Um, and it's, it's hard to know what's going on in the mind of a person, but it's important to know when to, when to abandon ship and, mm. and swim for the shore and write your book. Mm. Hmm. So we've, we've been talking for two hours now and I have loved every second of it. And I think we could talk for hours more and I also want to respect your time. And yet if you're, if you're up for it, I wanted to ask you just one more question. Um, you, you talk about your experience at UC Santa Cruz and the way I was reading that was that it was, it was there that you, experienced this cultural shift on college campuses, um, particularly when you were supportive of a controversial speaker coming to speak when students were protesting it. And then you were portrayed as, I believe it was racist, uh, which was absurd, of course. And you were simply advocating that even controversial ideas are, uh, you know, worthy of being heard. And that's how we can actually have conversations and do away with bad ideas. So my question is, what is your assessment of this new culture on college campuses and, and beyond where there's this sensitivity to hearing controversial ideas and a serious resistance to it? What's your, what's your assessment of that? Uh, I hate it. Um, I, um, and I don't believe it. I don't believe we're that sensitive. I don't believe we're, uh, that sensitive, um, to the word rape. Uh, there was a professor who was suspended at, uh, Brandeis University, my alma mater for using the word wetback 
Um, and he used it in the following context. He said that um, people trying to cross the border illegally from Mexico were often referred to as wetbacks because they had to swim across the Rio Grande River. And the word wetback was considered offensive to Mexican-American students. So he was suspended. Hmm. And I thought, I think yeah, that's a little bit much. Uh, we certainly can use words as an ex in an explanatory way. We should be able to do that. We should be able to invite controversial people to campus who have ideas that we don't agree with. We especially learn from people that we don't agree with. If we can engage them in civil argument, and Arthur Jensen, whose research led him to the, to the belief that there might be genetic differences in intelligence between black people and white people. Uh, I didn't agree with him, I disagreed with him. But when he was invited, when I was chair of the psychology department and the committee invited him because they wanted a chance to engage with him and, and uh, argue with him and point out flaws in his reasoning, perhaps. And then I was vilified for inviting such a person to campus. Now, it, an educational institution, and we, we have a lot to be proud of in this country in terms of how, <clears throat> how many great universities we have and how relatively easy it is for any person with enough motivation to get an education at a university. Um, we need to protect the ability of that university to present ideas that can be debated. Mm. Um, one of our great justices of the Supreme Court said that the, the solution or to people saying things that we don't like is more talk, not shutting them up, mm. but engaging them. So if they're, if they're willing to be engaged, if they're not simply out to make mischief, we should welcome them. Mm. Um, that, that increases our understanding. Civil liberties is not just a slogan. We believe in civil liberties. We believe in the First Amendment, especially at educational institutions, because it's what we're about. Mm. We shouldn't be afraid of words. Words aren't going to hurt us. Mm. Um, they might hurt little kids on the playground if you're called a bad name, a name that causes pain to you. Mm -hmm. But we're not little kids. Right. Um, university should be open to that sort of thing. Mm. My friend Elizabeth Loftus was invited to give a talk at NYU, one of our great universities. But then when she agreed to be a consultant for the defense in the Harvey Weinberg case, she was disinvited. 
not that stupid. Uh, yeah. You invite somebody and you don't try to govern everything they do in their mm. lives. Either she's a great scholar, which she is, that mm. you want to hear from, or she's not. Mm. Uh, all of this, um, all of this stuff is, is very disturbing to me. And mm. it's been going on. I, when it happened to me um, in the 1970s or 80s, I didn't see it as a trend. I just thought, gee, this is a dumb thing. You know, mm. I came from the University of Texas, where some of my colleagues and I really fought hard to get a fair housing ordinance passed in the city of Austin so that minority kids could have housing near campus, uh, which they were denied because there was a lot of redlining going on. Um, and then I my life was threatened by some guy who called at two o'clock in the morning to say, um, who called me an end lover and then said, he's gonna show up with a double barrel shotgun. So make sure that after 10 o'clock at night, it's I who answer the door because he doesn't wanna kill one of my kids by mistake. Uh, he says, I know where you live and I know you have four kids. And I thought, wow, this is something that happens in Texas and that, that, it was a little scary, mm. but, and I don't want to say the same thing happened at Santa Cruz, but at Santa Cruz, they, they did call me and say, how dare you invite Arthur Jensen to this campus uh, and called me a racist. It's, um, I haven't changed that much, but the culture seems to have changed around me. Mm. It's interesting you, you brought up Elizabeth Loftus and she was actually a guest on this podcast a couple months ago and so I had the opportunity to speak with her and have studied her work for a long time and I think so highly of her and when I then shared that podcast episode in a couple of you know, networks of psychologists, I couldn't believe the reaction that people had. It was as though they were willing to dismiss all of her scholarship and all of her contributions because she um, was an expert witness for the defense in the Harvey Weinstein case. They were just so repulsed by that, that they lost sight of who she is as a person and what contributions she's made to psychology was really eye-opening for me. Yeah, and look, one can say, um, and I would say that it was a mistake. If, if she had consulted, if she had asked me my opinion before she had agreed to do that, mm -hmm. I would have suggested that she be careful about doing that. I mean, it's an interesting issue. I think if you're a lawyer and Harvey Weinstein is entitled to a good defense, mm -hmm. as John Adams uh, defended, was, was a lawyer for the defense in the Boston massacre mm -hmm. of the 1770s, uh, a lawyer should be doing that, should be defending anyone mm -hmm. who needs a good defense. If you're an expert witness, it's it's uh, a gray area as far as I'm concerned. And I think she might have been wiser 
to duck out of that one. Mm. But she's still Elizabeth Loftus, and she's done magnificent work on memory and on re you know recovered memory and things of that sort. Uh, just very clever, very very smart, and a very good human being. It's crazy mm. what to to, uh, to be held to be held uh, in disrespect because of something like that. Mm. And it's interesting the way that it also affects students and their sense of freedom to speak out about what they how their perspective within the classroom. Like I've had examples. Take a, a topic, you know, for example, let's say transgender athletes, people who go from male to female, competing in female sports, right? And there are several examples of this where you have a uh, male to female transgender athlete dominating a, a female sport. And so people have very differing views on this. And I've had experiences in classrooms where this will come up. And then I've had students come up to me after class to tell me what they really think, but what they were too afraid to say in the group discussion because the backlash is so intense. So it's yeah. the effects are, are very devastating in terms of our ability to have healthy dialogue. I think so. And, uh, you know, at my university here in uh, UC Santa Cruz, it's tough to be a conservative mm -hmm. student. Uh, and, uh, and it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't right. be that way. Hmm. I want, I want to respect your, your time here. You've given me again, like over two hours of your time. And I'm sure you value your time as much as Leon Festinger and <laughs> valued his. Um, uh, but this has been a very special experience for me. So thank you. You're welcome, and I just want—I just want to say that uh, I don't do things that I don't enjoy doing. Mm. That's one of the privileges of, of being 89 years old. Mm. Don't—I don't have to do anything I don't want to do, and uh, there, there, there are precious few privileges of being 89, but that's one of them. <laughs> and so I did this. I kept going because I didn't lost track of time, and I kind of mm. enjoyed it, and. Uh, you ask good questions and I could I could go on a little bit longer. Um, for example, yeah, bring it. one topic that I we haven't covered, but uh, I'll just mention it briefly. I have a pet peeve that I call the tedification of American psychology. And that <laughs> is how many psychologists jump into the TED show mm. um, and are willing to try to present complex ideas in 18 minutes mm. um, or whatever, however the long, they once invited me to do that and I turned it down because I didn't want to do that and I didn't want to talk without notes and I didn't want to, if, if you're ap appealing to a mass audience like mm. TED does, you want to make sure you get it right. And you really don't want to. It, so Ted becomes an entertainment show. And it swallows up people who are tempted to oversell their ideas. Mm. Um, like that, you know, you stand in a particular power stance, 
Mm. And uh, that has enormous impact on all kinds of things. I don't blame the person who did it. I think it's, it's the situation is very tempting and it produces an oversimplification of complex ideas um, that can only be, I mean, it, it can be brought out in a situation like the one we're in, which sometimes takes a couple of hours, mm -hmm. but uh, you can't do it in 18 minutes. And the temptation is huge to people mm -hmm. to appear on a, on a show like that. And sometimes it comes off really well, sure. but other times it ends up in overstatement and in um, a trivialization of a complex notion. Oh gosh, so glad you brought this up. And it's, it's, that's a, I just think you're spot on with that assessment. And it's so interesting to compare the nature of a TED talk to the nature of, for example, a presentation at a conference with a bunch of fellow scholars. The way that people deliver the presentation is dramatically different. You know, in, in a conference, for example, people are constantly sandwiching their claims with caveats and they're constantly doing the exact opposite of dramatizing them. They're, they're making sure that they say every qualification they need to say and point out all the limitations and why you shouldn't really even, you know, take this with a grain of salt and et cetera. And then, yeah, like you say, you know, on a, on a TED stage where potentially millions of people will view this talk, there is a natural tendency to dramatize it and over like you said overstate claims and then when you consider the way that this is then received by the public where if there were any caveats in the ted talk those were probably not remembered by the public and then you basically get these truisms spreading throughout the culture it's basically entertainment yes and it's entertainment masquerading as scholarship mm. um now you know that's an overstatement right there because mm. i think some people are probably very good at giving a ted talk that is not overstated and is within bounds and really backed up by the research mm. but some people aren't careful about that and get seduced by the culture of the TED talk, I mm. think. So that's one of my pet peeves. And that's you mentioned the other one, which is what's happening on college campuses mm. with mm. the censorship. And the worst thing about censorship is that it leads to self-censorship. Mm. So after a while, the censor doesn't have to do much um, because we end up censoring ourselves. Uh, and for a professor to start censoring himself is a problem. I, 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 I've recently reread a book I read a long time ago uh, called uh, Teaching Lolita, no, Reading Lolita in Tehran, uh, which was by a, an Iranian uh, scholar who ended up emigrating to America and wrote this book about how in an underground way she taught Lolita and The Great Gatsby and several other important novels uh, to a small group of students. Um, 
And one of her students, when she was teaching at the University of Tehran, uh, told her that such and such a professor is really very good because he's very cooperative. Uh, because in a Xerox copy of a particular novel people were reading, he crossed out the word wine, W-I-N-E, out of sensitivity to the needs of the Muslim students who don't drink wine. Um, that's happening in Iran and has been happening ever since Ayatollah Khomeini took over. I hate to see it happening in this country. Mm -hmm. On this note, I actually have a question for you about, so again, kind of coming from a place of also being a professor, but a much younger one. And, you know, at the beginning of my career, how have you handled bringing your own perspective on politics and controversial issues into the classroom without coming off as some professor who's opinionated and just trying to so-called brainwash his students? How have you been able to navigate bringing in your views on politics in particular without coming across in that way? Um, I, you know, I, I always did it in a way that invited uh, disagreement. Mm. Uh, and so that we could discuss these things. But I think, I mean, I always tried to, I'm not sure if I, to the extent to which I succeeded, but I also am very lucky that I, my career uh, as a teacher started in 1959 and ended around 2000 or 2002. And I think um, that may have been a golden age. Mm -hmm. And I think I can't, I can't ignore the fact that I've been incredibly lucky uh, in my time. The only uh, time I ever got in, into any kind of controversial stuff was with inviting Arthur Jensen. Um, and in, in fact, that I always tried to have a kind of a warm personal relationship with students and that there was a time near the end of my career where that became forbidden. Mm. Uh, you know, it, you're supposed to keep your distance. Mm. Uh, and that, I, I mean, I really love the idea of the kind of closeness I developed with people like Abraham Maslow, Dave McClellan, Leon Festinger came because we were guys who could go out for a drink together, or smoke cigars together, mm. hang out together. Um, it's harder to do when there are gender differences, but it's it's a mistake to um, to shelter people from that kind of experience uh, just because it might be considered gender inappropriate. Mm. That's uh, you know I uh, in my the last years I was teaching. I, I would teach a large introductory social psychology class that had 250 to 300 students in it, depending on the size of the room. I used to have, they used to do a lottery to see who could get in. Um, and um, 
I had uh, always had four or five teaching assistants who would run sections in the course. And we would meet once a week to discuss the material and to prep them for to see what kind of topics they want to bring in in sections. And I would we would always go to a Mexican restaurant and drink margaritas and um, and eat uh, Mexican food. And sometimes some of the uh, students would get a little bit tipsy on the margaritas. And I always saw that as a way of professors and students should be relating. Uh, near the end of my career, that became a little bit difficult to do. Um, and that's too bad. Yeah. We, we, we tend to think of progress as being linear, but it isn't. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's like a roller coaster. And you know all about roller coasters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I found myself, I don't know what, how to describe the feeling exactly, but almost like a, a longing for some of the atmospheres that you were in um, and how it just, it feels so different now. And what you're describing is a perfect example of a, a friendly atmosphere where you can exchange ideas with colleagues and students over dinner at your house or over a martini or, yeah. and it just, just feels like there's so many things that are off limits. And I respect that. And I, I understand why certain standards are in place now, but I do think something is lost in all of these new standards and in the new culture, which is the opportunity to connect in a really authentic way where the barriers of the roles of professor and student are not so strong. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know what the future holds in this regard. My guess is, um, the intimacy will come back again in a different mm. form, maybe a better form, maybe mm. a slightly more protected form. Mm. But mm. One thing you can count on is change. Mm. Nothing stays the same. Mm. Well, I, I know that your philosophy and the way that you like like experience the roller coaster of your life is that the moment you're in is your favorite moment and it's been an honor and this has been this is my current favorite moment of my life right now <laughs> to be here with you and i'm just so grateful that i've had this opportunity to talk to you it's been so fun i've enjoyed it a lot um I hope I can get a do. Do you videotape? Oh no, I can always go online and get it. Right? Okay. Right. Yeah, I will definitely. I don't need to own it. Yeah. I yeah. know, right? It's so different now, and I, I will, I will send you a link to this conversation right when we publish it, and uh, we're actually not too geographically distant from each other. I'm over the hill from you in in the city of Gilroy. So perhaps in a post-COVID world, maybe a physical meeting 
will take place between us. Very good. All right. It will if we wanted to. There we go. Perfect. Well then, okay, Nick. let's stay in care. touch. Thank you all again, right. and thank you to all viewers and listeners who have listened to this entire conversation. I admire your stamina, and I'm glad that it was that enjoyable. <laughs> okay, Dr. Aronson, have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.